You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from RAND. I'm Evan Banks. And I'm Deanna Lee. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's February 16th. It's unclear how or when the war in Ukraine will end. But once it does, Russia will remain a threat, both to Ukraine and to the U.S. and allied interests. So how should Washington deal with Moscow after the conflict? Rand researchers tackle this question in a new report. Because the post-war period is fraught with uncertainty, they considered a range of future scenarios based on how the conflict might end, how international events evolve in the decade after the war, and how the United States chooses to deal with Russia. For example, in one post-war scenario, the conflict ends after a long war of attrition. There's a weak ceasefire in place, China provides lethal aid to Russia, Ukraine suffers modest territorial setbacks, and the U.S. takes a hardline approach toward Moscow. Instability reigns at many levels. The situation in Ukraine remains a powder keg. Political relations between NATO and Russia are worse than before the war, and U.S. policy risks fueling a nuclear arms race with Russia and China. But again, that's just one of many possible futures. At the other end of the spectrum is a future in which the war ends sooner rather than later, this time with a robust ceasefire rather than a weak one. China does not provide Russia with lethal aid, Ukraine makes modest territorial gains rather than suffering losses, and the U.S. takes a less hardline approach toward Russia. Our researchers call this relatively stable post-war scenario cold peace. In it, nuclear tensions among the United States, Russia, and China are lower than in the other scenarios the researchers explored, and NATO-Russia relations although more fraught than they were before the war, may be less likely to lead to a direct clash. Further, the ceasefire in Ukraine is most likely to hold up under these future conditions, which could also lead to Ukraine integrating with the EU, consolidating its democracy, and building a strong independent deterrent against future Russian aggression. Comparing these and other future scenarios reveals valuable insights about how America's post-war policy choices might play out. And as our authors note, even though no one can say for certain when or how the fighting will end, it's critical to begin thinking through U.S. post-war strategy now, because decisions made in the aftermath of conflict can have significant global consequences. As of January 2023... 18 U.S. states had passed policies that restrict teachers' instruction on certain political and social issues, such as topics related to race and gender. New RAND survey results suggest that these policies affect teachers and students beyond the states where restrictions have been put in place. Many teachers who are not subject to any restrictions said they chose on their own, without direction from school or district leaders, to limit classroom discussions about political and social topics. In fact, 65% of teachers nationally reported deciding to limit discussions about, quote, divisive topics related to race or gender. That's nearly double the share of teachers whose states restrict what they can cover in their classrooms. 
The reasons that teachers choose to limit their instruction included a fear of upsetting parents, uncertainty about whether school and school district leaders would support them if parents expressed concerns, and an overall lack of guidance from school and school district leaders. Further, teachers were more likely to choose to limit classroom instruction of social and political topics if they worked in more politically conservative communities. These findings raise questions about how many students across the United States have opportunities to engage in discussions on current or controversial issues, a proven practice necessary for civic development. You can find the complete survey results at RAND.org. A RAND report published this week looks at the potential risks that emerging technologies could bring to the U.S. financial system. These risks include deepfakes that move markets, attacks on AI-enabled financial models, and internet memes that undermine economic stability. Fortunately, our analysis suggests that these threats pose a limited near-term risk of significant economic damage. The cost of conducting an attack that uses these technologies is high, and existing safeguards that protect the market are effective. However, America's eroding financial resilience and institutional trust over time could make these threats more severe in the long term. In fact, the authors write that the most significant threat is not an abrupt event akin to a financial 9-11, so to speak. Instead, there's more cause for concern about a slow and steady process, potentially driven by a decrease of trust in markets, something akin to financial climate change. There are ways to help protect against this, such as implementing economic policies that encourage competition in the market. This could expand the options available to financial institutions looking to incorporate AI into their operations, and help increase overall resilience in the financial sector. Our experts also recommend conducting regular economic war games that simulate and assess the country's financial vulnerabilities. These exercises could identify weaknesses in the financial system and help inform ways to address them. The threats that emerging technologies may pose to the U.S. economy are a potentially serious concern. However, there are more imminent threats to America's critical infrastructure that must also be addressed. And these threats aren't hypothetical. There are ongoing attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure, which includes finance, but also energy, healthcare, food and agriculture, transportation, and water. Rand Stephen Weber recently wrote about this issue, explaining that the U.S. has been facing these attacks for nearly two decades. As early as 2009, hackers affiliated with China and Russia infiltrated America's electrical grid, installing malware that could be used for future attacks. In 2013, Iranian hackers took control of a dam in New York, nearly flooding a small town. And just last year, a China-backed hacker network breached Microsoft IT systems, attempting to access critical infrastructure on the U.S. territory of Guam. These ongoing attacks and known threats to civilian critical infrastructure are made worse because U.S. defense depends on some of the very same systems. Worse still, there has been little meaningful response. Policymakers from the national to the local level must act now, Weber says, to better prepare their communities for the impacts of critical infrastructure attacks. 
How exactly? To start, they can take steps to improve collaboration between the private sector, which owns most critical infrastructure, and local governments, which oversee the infrastructure. National decision makers should also take action to better evaluate different federal agencies' ability to manage multiple crises at once. The final piece of preparedness doesn't come from policymakers. It comes from the public. Societal resilience is critical to not making the bad effects of critical infrastructure attacks much worse. In 2021, when a ransomware attack shut down the Colonial Pipeline, gasoline shortages were caused not by the direct disruption to supply, but by widespread panic buying. To ensure this doesn't happen again, local leaders should take steps to engage their communities in preparedness planning. And at the national level, leaders should be cognizant of our current state of political polarization. Quote, as in any attack meant to sow disruption and division, Weber says, we do our enemies work for them when we panic. Since President Biden took office in 2021, the United States has strengthened key partnerships in Southeast Asia. For instance, it has increased U.S. access to Philippine military bases, which not only unlocks potential military advantages with regard to Beijing in disputed areas of the South China Sea, but could also support U.S. military intervention in a future conflict over Taiwan. Washington also strengthened ties with Vietnam, Indonesia, and Singapore. While the progress with some Southeast Asian nations is notable, Rand's Derek Grossman says that Washington is largely ignoring others in the region, and thus continuing to fall short of its goal of edging out China. The United States has mostly adopted a policy of benign neglect in Southeast Asia, he says. For instance, the United States has systematically ignored Brunei, Cambodia, Laos, and Malaysia, albeit for varying reasons. Further, the U.S. cannot claim any measurable success on Southeast Asia's most pressing internal matter, the ongoing civil war in Myanmar. Since Myanmar's military coup in 2021, Washington has imposed numerous sanctions against the country, most recently targeting its oil and gas sector. These sanctions have led the regime to deepen engagement with China. So what can be done to address these shortcomings? Greater U.S. engagement to build more strong partnerships and alliances in the region will help, Grossman says. But the most important thing the U.S. can do is develop a viable economic strategy that positions Washington to counter Beijing's growing trade and investment ties in Southeast Asia. Without action on the economic front, the U.S. cannot hope to win the strategic competition against China. That's it for this week's episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed today, check out the show notes at rand.org podcast. We'll see you next week. RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis.